idea of romanticizing places that were brutal and cruel. But we do have that tendency, still continuing in this country, to whitewash our history, to avoid the terrible, shameful parts. We need to see the reality with our eyes wide open, accept that this is our history, and we need to do what we can now to right the wrongs that have been continuing to this day. Welcome to the Shrinks on Third Psychology and Justice podcast. I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. And I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. Welcome. Cindy, you know how sometimes you hear a word and you kind of take for granted that you know what it means. And then when you really stop and look into it, there's a lot more there than you thought there was. Yes, Julie. And that's what happened when we came across the word antebellum. It's a word from before the Civil War. So we began to suspect that there's some racism embedded in it. Turns out, (laughs) shocking. Turns out that word represents a most shameful period of time in American history. And we're gonna talk about that today. Whew, yeah. The word antebellum comes from Latin and basically means before war. I don't really know Latin. (laughs) I read that. Mm-hmm. It usually refers to about five decades before and leading up to the Civil War in 1861. The antebellum era came to be associated with the Civil War after it was over. And it makes us think of grand architecture with beautiful mansions and those big white columns with sprawling grounds, trees draped in moss and women in brimmed hats and fancy dresses at afternoon tea on the veranda. Then there were the romanticist writers of the time from Whitman, Melville, I would say Poe, but he was a very dark writer. He had a lot of substance abuse problems, but that's for another episode. (laughs) You know, there were other uh, writers too, like a a really well-known one is Mark Twain. And he wrote The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in 18, it came out in 1885. Uh, But, you know, just to go back, there's a major problem with this whole aesthetic. What it does is it minimizes the hideous reality of slavery. The fact that it was all built on the backs of enslaved people. The white plantation aesthetic of the antebellum era, like so much of the United States history, became whitewashed and it glorifies a really painful, horrifying and shameful period in our history. Yes, we learn about how there was major growth during this period when the South was dominant with all the agriculture and the Northern textile industry was booming. There were advances in practically every part of industry and production, manufacturing equipment, machinery, furniture, paint, paper, glass. At the same time, a shortage of food supplies and increased food prices across Europe created really high demand for cotton, cane sugar and other products from the South like rice, corn and tobacco, and it all fueled the slave trade. Right, because the more you need to produce, the more slaves you need to do the producing. So that increased the need for slaves. 
In addition to the economic issues and the social problems relating to slavery during that time, there were other concerns during the antebellum years. It was a period of a lot of reform around prisons, treatment of mental health, and the beginning of the women's rights movement. Women protested unfair treatment and anti-democratic practices regarding their gender. Not everyone could breathe through their plantations in their long flowing gowns with servants at their beck and call. Even the ones who could were often covering up abuse by their husbands. And then there was the second awakening, a religious revival that inspired the abolitionist movement. During the antebellum period, there was a rise in spirituality and religion, which led to the growing abolitionist movement because some people began to see owning slaves as a sin. At the same time, industrial expansion created jobs that attracted thousands of immigrants to America. Immigrants arrived with few resources and you might imagine, or maybe you come from immigrants since most of us do, um, they usually had to start at the bottom. Working class families had to send all their members, including children out to work to earn money. By 1850, some states began regulating work conditions by passing child labor laws, limiting workdays to 10 hours per day, though these laws didn't apply to slave labor, of course. The abuse of women and children through horrible working conditions was just horrendous, but at least they weren't slaves. Exactly. The wealth was powered by the suffering of millions of enslaved African-Americans who endured torture at the hands of white slaveholders, especially in the Deep South. But there was a lot of debate about it. Slavery was being abolished in the Northern states and was gradually illegal in all of them. But of course, the North still had strong economic ties to slavery. In the South, the economy totally depended on the agriculture powered by enslavement. Yeah, so what happened was sort of similar to the political divisions we're experiencing today. During the antebellum era, there was a gradual polarization between abolition and people who supported slavery. So during this time, the country's economy was shifting in the North to manufacturing as the Industrial Revolution began. In the South though, a cotton boom made plantations the center of the economy. They had no interest in ending slavery. Sugar and cotton plantations were extremely profitable for the white people who owned the plantations. Big money was made because slave owners had free labor. They had free labor and plantation owners were able to buy large areas of land for little money. Most white farmers were able to buy farmland if they wanted to, especially after the Indian Removal Act of 1830 when land was literally taken back from the Native Americans it was promised to and sold cheaply to white Southerners, allowing them to become plantation owners and move up the economic ladder. Okay, okay, wait. <laughs> this is horrifying. This is terrible. It makes it sound like this country was full of evil, greedy, opportunistic white men who killed people, enslaved people, removed people from their own lands just to make a buck as it was, exactly. So the, the antebellum period was just full of this stuff. While manufacturing progress increased the need to make use of land and slaves. So the antebellum period that you described before, like the scenes from Gone with the Wind or something, was actually a time of unforgivable mistreatment of the poor and people of color by the whites in power. And in all 
Of course, it was all in an effort to make money and eventually to build our country into a world power. Capitalism at its finest. I know you aren't surprised by that. No. <laughs> but it's difficult to digest these facts about our history. They don't make you feel proud and it's definitely not the whitewashed version we've been taught. The government literally took back land they promised the Native Americans and sold it for cheap. A lot of people in the North wanted that land to be given away by the government rather than sold, but Southerners wanted it sold so tariffs wouldn't have to be raised. And also to keep down the competition and not lower their land values. Of course, I didn't see where anyone favored not taking back land that was promised to the people they stole it from in the first place. No, of course not. <laughs> so with cheap land and no need to pay for labor, boy, did they reap high profits. Every harvest, great for them. Mm. Free labor and the labor couldn't quit. They couldn't ask for a raise. I mean, a raise on nothing is nothing. And you would get even less than nothing if you angered your master. And then the children of enslaved people were born into slavery, so generations of black people were enslaved. Most plantations actually had 50 slaves or less, but the largest ones had hundreds. And while slaves were mostly on plantations, they were actually everywhere. Enslaved people made up at least 20% of the populations in most Southern cities. The demand for slave labor and the ban on importing new slaves drove up prices for slaves making it profitable for smaller farms to sell slaves to larger plantations. The number of slaves you owned reflected wealth and gave you political power. Slaves were property and status as property was enforced by violence. It's true. It's just so horrifying and depressing. Seriously, no matter how well their owners treated them, no matter how kind they maybe were, it's an unbearable imbalance of power. And most owners weren't kind. No. They were just making money and they wanted it most efficiently done as possible. It's just shameful. But the truth is most white people did not own slaves. They were struggling farmers working their land with family help because most weren't big wealthy plantation owners. They resented the wealth and power of the large slaveholders, but they still defended slavery and they aspired to own slaves, just like someone now wants to get a fancy car that you know, shows an increase in their status. It's like fantasies some poor white Americans have right now. If, you, like if they support the rich, the white men in power, like our most recent past president pretended to be, they too might become richer, despite the obvious reality that it's the opposite. That's oddly the way it works and the patriarchy depends on it. But regardless, enslavement is inhumane. We're talking about people. Owning other people can never be humane. And their treatment wasn't any more humane. Enslaved people were given living quarters that were just awful, leaving them vulnerable to disease. Clothing, bedding, food, and medicine were inadequate, especially because these people worked endless hours. They had to work in the hot, hot sun. Uh, and really child mortality was so high on these plantations was over 50%. Enslaved people also had to live under constant threat of sale, either as punishment or to make up for some financial or personal loss of the master. And even when immediate family members were kept together, 
they were almost always sold away from extended family. And frequently enslaved families were just broken up. Each plantation had authority to treat enslaved people in whatever way it wanted. It was free reign. In addition, enslaved people lived under laws called slave codes. The codes varied among the states, but the bottom line was that slaves were always considered property, not ever people. There were official and unofficial slave patrols that terrorized and tortured black people. Killing a slave was almost never considered murder and rape of enslaved women was a form of trespassing. This is so terrible. It's so awful to hear. Yeah, I know. But enslaved people found a lot of ways to resist. Many used passive resistance like slowing their work or certainly running away was a major option, although it was very dangerous to do. Some learned to read and write, which was forbidden by law, but sometimes there was an owner or a pastor or someone who could teach them to write. Others resisted violently because what did they have to lose? Even turning the violence toward themselves through suicide and self-mutilation, which would, by the way, infuriate owners who saw it as ruining property. And thousands of slaves ran away, but they had to live in hiding or attempt to escape to the North to live free, but segregated in a racist system. When I think about slavery, similar to when I think about the Holocaust, I hope I would be a resistor, an abolitionist. I don't believe we can judge others by what we think we would do in a time we didn't live. So I just think I have to do the right thing today in this time, because that's the time we have. That's so true, Cindy. I feel like that's all we can do. We can't change the past and we can't really know what it would be like. I would like to think I wouldn't ever under any circumstances believe it would be okay to own another human being. It just seems so crazy. But like you said, we didn't live then. It's a little chilling. There are stories of African-Americans who also owned slaves who were other African-Americans whenever they could. Even though I keep seeing similarities today, there were some huge differences in how humans viewed one another back then. Yeah, I once dated someone who told me that if he lived in that time period, he probably would have owned slaves. And when I expressed shock and horror, he said, well, that's just what you did back then. Of course, I broke up with him, but this stuck with me. Could he not think for himself? I mean, some people did. I like to think I would have. Yeah, that was a good swipe left right there. Good <laughs> <laughs> <Here> to him. <laughs> I agree with you, but in states that outlawed slavery, systemic racism and segregationist practices prevented black people from achieving full equality with white peers anyway. And this of course is true to this day. Just listen to pretty much any of our recent podcasts. <laughs> so in some way, we've been unwitting parts of this institutionalized racism. Yeah, I would get so angry too, when I saw movies of Southern white women who told on the slaves or treated them badly, I'm wondering about my desire now in thinking about it, my desire to forgive them a little as I learn about the oppression of women also from that era. But lately I thought, were they not able to do better? Many would have been tortured and beaten by their husbands, but they still gave up other people to save themselves. I was taught never to do that, not be a tattletale. Maybe the wives should have run away. What choices did they have? I just wonder all this. I don't want to forgive them just because they're white. I, I just want to understand. Is that bad? Look, we can only imagine the limited choices women of all races had back then. Privileged white men held all the power in the South. 
through land ownership, political influence, wealth, and just physical threat. For white men to remain at the top of the social hierarchy during the antebellum era, they needed all of their dependents to be subordinate. And a master was expected to control them in whatever way he saw fit. That includes women, children, and slaves. Yeah. Even poorer white farmers still had power as head of the household, which courts reinforced. White women had no legal identity and no legal power. Her whole identity came through her relation to men. It was believed that women and slaves were biologically and naturally meant to be subordinate. And don't forget that women risked losing their children if they ran away because they would never be you know, allowed to keep them. There's just so, there was so much control on everyone, over everyone, except for the white men. It is hard to imagine that people would think that way today. I mean, most people today. Some white women did take active roles in abolition, but beliefs about the role of women at the time, what they called the culture of domesticity or of true womanhood, severely limited the role of white middle and upper-class women. Their domain was strictly the home and the children. And while they had some authority within that domain, again, the men ultimately controlled it. And going outside of what society deemed appropriate for these women had serious consequences. I suppose it's sort of human nature to try to hold on to whatever little tiny bit of power you might have gotten. This also doesn't excuse white feminists moving forward, though. Once they did gain control of more spheres in the world and became able to speak out with these kind of consequences, or they at least had options, we left women of color to fend for themselves, maybe not realizing it, but that's what happened. And we don't want to ignore or erase that, but we're focusing this episode back to the antebellum period. Maybe we need a whole episode on feminism. Yeah. Obviously, the economies of the North were not as directly dependent on slave labor, but cotton made some Northerners very wealthy. So they were supportive of the brutal system of slavery in the South as they could pretend that they didn't approve of it. But abolitionists thankfully grew stronger. In the 1830s, anti-slavery sentiments began spreading in some of the Northern states and gained a lot of traction over the next 20 years. But slavery remained legal until officially abolished by the 13th Amendment in 1865. Before that, slaves sometimes took matters into their own hands. One of the most famous slave rebellions during the antebellum period was on a plantation in Virginia. An uprising was led by a black slave named Nat Turner who organized the killing of 60 white people. There was always horrible backlash to any enslaved person's resistance. And it would also result in tightening up on the slave codes and laws that limited their movement and their freedom to gather. Opposition to the anti-slavery movement was huge and often dangerous, but its members were relentless as they should have been and as they needed to be. Many abolitionists helped form the Underground Railroad leading slaves north to freedom. I like to think I would have helped here as well, but I wasn't there and I didn't. I wanna help now, even though it's too late for so much of this. Well, certainly for the Underground Railroad, yes. yes. <laughs> A lot of people have fought hard over the years to dismantle these oppressive systems. And I would like to think, you know, we, we would participate in that. It's only the right thing to do. I guess the important point for this episode is that this is how entrenched racism was in the antebellum era 
and how it has persisted to the current day. So back when we were in school, we learned about slavery and how awful it was, as if it were just over. We learned that once Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860, South Carolina attempted to leave the Union and sent ambassadors to other slave states asking them to leave too, to form a new Southern Confederacy. This led to four years of civil war that destroyed the Confederacy and ended slavery and the antebellum era, the end. <laughs> and some of that is true, but it wasn't as simple as it sounds. It seemed like good had been done and now it was just for everyone to accept it. But investigating this period, you see the remnants of all of it remaining today. Right. I mean, we're opening our eyes to racist elements of our world that we, they were right in our face, but we didn't see them. It also seems relevant to mention the idea of manifest destiny that was popular in the antebellum era. The belief that the U.S. and its institutions are morally superior, making the U.S. destined to take over the entire Northern Hemisphere. You know, we've wondered before out loud how people who came for their own freedom and liberty withheld the same from others. But this is how they believed they were morally superior. I remember learning about Manifest Destiny in junior high or high school and thinking it was a great thing. I had no idea that really it was just stealing, taking over people and land and... Propaganda. Yeah. So not only has all of this been whitewashed and the term antebellum used to make it look beautiful. We have an industry of people getting married on plantations now because the landscape is so lovely. If you don't look past the green grass and the stately columns, you can Google plantation wedding venues and you get a bunch that pop up and boy, they look beautiful. Yeah, maybe look for another setting for your vows of happily ever after. Yeah, you don't want them um, influenced by uh, ghosts from the past. <laughs> I hate the idea of romanticizing places that were brutal and cruel, but we do have that tendency still continuing in this country to whitewash our history, to avoid the terrible, shameful parts. We need to see the reality with our eyes wide open, except that this is our history and we need to do what we can now to right the wrongs that have been continuing to this day. Thanks for listening today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Until next time, take care.